You're listening to Discover Hope with Pastor Tom Leake of Hope Bible Church in Columbia, Maryland. Dr. MacArthur writes, those whose lives are based on and motivated by human ungodly wisdom are inevitably self-centered. Living in a world in which their own personal ideas, desires, and standards are the measure of everything. Whatever and whoever serves those ends is considered good and friendly. Whatever and whoever threatens those ends is considered bad and an enemy. Those who are engulfed in self-serving worldly wisdom resent anyone or anything that comes between them and their own objectives. He just wants what he wants. He likes those that like what he desires. But anyone who's against what he wishes? Know anyone like this? Pastor Tom today discusses two completely opposite places that wisdom comes from. On one end, you have a wisdom that's gentle, that shows good deeds, that's a lifestyle. Tipping the scale is the wisdom that comes from self, selfish ambition, pride, arrogance. The question is, will you chase after godly wisdom or reap consequences from an earthly wisdom? Now, here's Pastor Tom in the book of James chapter 3, as he begins his message, Heavenly and Hellish Wisdom. Now listening to uh, the Word of God. This is why we integrate preaching with worship, because it's part of our worship to hear and receive God's Word in our hearts and respond to God as He would have us respond. It's part of our worship. How people respond in the midst of this coming mayhem is going to tell an awful lot about who they are personally and as families, as a church, who we are what wisdom we espouse, what wisdom we follow, whether it's the wisdom of the world or whether we've really learned something from God. The political jockeying for power, for position, for prestige, the sharp party lines, the reckless accusations being launched against the opposition, unguarded conclusions people make, bitter rivalry, presently brewing, even bubbling, Amplified, of course, by the media's lust for ratings. We might say that's exhibit A of the wisdom of the world. That's how they are going to go about trying to solve the problems of our nation. The world earnestly believes it must behave this way and think this way if it's going to gain the power to accomplish the agendas that need to be accomplished as they see it. These verbal brawls that who knows may turn into something more than that by candidates, by pundits, even by just ordinary citizens like you and me, they may be juxtaposed with the matchless and eternal example and teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. He came into the world to usher in a completely different kind of order with a completely different kind of wisdom of the Christ child long before, 800 years before Christ was born, Isaiah the prophet prophesied, a child will be born to us, that means to the Jewish nation. A son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And then it goes on to say, there will be no end to the increase of his government and of peace. On the throne of David and over David's kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. 
That's why the first coming of Christ only begins the process. We have to keep thinking about the second coming of Christ where it will be completed and Christ will grab the reins of government on this earth. That's the government we're all waiting for. What is the wisdom of Jesus Christ that he will use to govern his kingdom? Well, Isaiah continues to prophesy in chapter 11. He says, the spirit of the Lord will rest upon the Messiah, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Would that all of our leaders had that spirit upon them. This kind of wisdom, the wisdom from the Holy Spirit is a wisdom that the rulers of Paul's age, the rulers that were manning things when Christ was on earth the first time, they didn't understand this wisdom. They didn't get it. It didn't resonate in their minds. It just seemed like foolishness to them. It really didn't take over Rome's thinking. It was an abhorrent kind of wisdom. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it's a wisdom not of this age, nor the rulers of this age who are passing away, but the wisdom of Christ will remain. This is, according to 1 Corinthians 2, God's wisdom. I mentioned last time that Jesus' birth is really like an invasion. It was an invasion that brought a whole different order, a whole different way of thinking, a whole different wisdom into the world. We Christians you know, we're to adopt that wisdom. We're to have that wisdom and cherish that wisdom. We're to, uh, we're to treasure that wisdom as being greater than any of the wisdom we would learn from the world, greater than anything that we'd be taught in our so-called educated uh, circles that we have here, the, the schools that are there, or what we listen to on TV, whether it's one side or the other. They don't have God's wisdom. We have something greater, something more precious, and we are to rise above all of that and see it and embrace it and use it. That first Christmas was an invasion really of epic proportions. Here you have a, a world saturated in lies, every kind of lie, and here he who embodies truth comes down into the world. What an invasion of truth. We had a holy love into a world of false love. A lot of people talk about love today. They don't know what it is. They pervert love. Love is allowing people to do any doggone thing that they want to do. No, it's not. A holy kind of love comes and brings God's manner of life and says, live this way, it's better for you. He brought that love into the world. He brought light into a realm sitting in darkness, as our carols say. He brought peace into a fractured and divided humanity. He showed the only way humanity will ever come together, and it's not through an election or through political power. To realize the beauty of Jesus' wisdom from above the excellent character of that wisdom, we've turned to what doesn't seem at all like a Christmas passage, but James chapter 3, and we're studying heavenly wisdom versus hellish wisdom, and maybe contrasting this with what goes on in society is a great way of seeing the difference between that heavenly wisdom from above and that hellish wisdom from below. It's James 3, 13 to 18. We read it last time. I'll read it again. Please open to your, to your copy of God's Word to that, that location and follow along with me. Verses 13 through 18. James asks, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, 
full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Well, the scripture here contrasts two radically divergent kinds of wisdom. You just heard it. It urges us really to abandon the one and to embrace the other. And there are three ways that James is attempting to get us to do this, to embrace the wisdom from above. He first challenges all those that are the self-professed wise people. That's verse 13. We covered that last time. Second, he unmasks wisdom from below. You want to know what this wisdom is? You think it's really great? You honor the people that are like this? Well, let me kind of unmask it and show it to you so you understand it's not really all that great. That's in verses 14 to 16. We'll try to cover that today. And third, he magnifies the wisdom from above in verses 17 through 18. Lord willing, we'll handle that next time. Last time, just for a little bit of review, as he challenged the self-professed wise, verse 13, who among you is wise and understanding, he asked, really as a challenge. Let him show it by his good behavior and his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. Are you really wise, sophos? Do you really have knowledge for life? Are you really understanding? Do you have the skill of understanding what is best in each situation of life? Do you understand what life is about? Are you really like that? Step forward and let's compare your wisdom with God's. It's a challenge. If you really are wise, you have to show it. You have to demonstrate it in your life. You can't just talk it. It can't just be the head talking on TV. This is a wise person. It has to be the way the person lives. And he must show it by good behavior. Kalos. Remember we talked about that being a a word that means noble or beautiful or attractive. Behavior is the uh, idea of a lifestyle. And so you put that together and you're talking about a noble and good lifestyle. Something seen over a long period of time. And then people can discern that's that's a wise person. And then he adds, if you want to show this wisdom, if you really have this wisdom, it needs to be in deeds done in the gentleness of wisdom. That word that's hard to translate, gentleness, proutes, that's translated meekness or humility. A soft approach to dealing with others because you've already been very humbled by your understanding of your own sin and the reception of the gospel. Now you're careful, you're caring, you're unassuming in dealing with other people. You're not barging in, pushing your way being obnoxious, but you're humbled and you're meek and dealing with others, that in particular, that characteristic is the one that shows someone has really understood the gospel of Jesus, brought it into their life, now has that wisdom and lives that way. If they don't have that gentleness, it doesn't matter how many answers they can have, even in church, they don't really understand wisdom. Powerful lesson really for all of us about what wise people are really, really like. And so James challenges us with that. Now, the second way that James wants to dislodge our embrace of worldly wisdom, and that's what he has to do because we often are so impressed with people in the world and the wisdom they have and the solutions they come up with and the rhetoric that they have, and we ooh and awe about them, whether they're politicians on the left or right, whether they're people in, in, in a worldly church or whether they're just statesmen as they're called, whatever they are, we get so impressed with their wisdom. God's not, and we shouldn't be. We should have much more discernment about it. We should be able to see it. That, that's, that sounds great, but it's not really all that wise. So we have to dislodge that, and then what we need to do is learn to embrace the Christ-like wisdom from above that the Christ child brought down to us. So we're going to look at that now in verses 14 through 16. Look at that. Make sure your head's looking down at the book as we're doing this so you really get that, verses 14 through 16. Because here's where he's just going to rip the mask off, and I want you to see how ugly this thing is. But if you have, This assumes many people do. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant, in this interesting phrase he has there, and so lie against the truth. 
This wisdom, so notice he's calling it a wisdom, but it's not really a wisdom. This kind of wisdom is not that which comes down from above. Jesus didn't bring this one into the world. But it is, and we get some adjectives here, earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. Now notice this is a contrast from verse 13, right? It starts with the word but, so you know it's a contrast. This means he's showing the opposite kind of a wisdom. The person who thinks and acts like verses 14 through 16 that way, he's not really the gentle and meek, wise person of verse 13. These two wisdoms are diametrically opposed to each other. So here in verse 14 through 16, as he's unmasking the wisdom down from below, he's going to do that in three ways. You can consider this sort of an outline within an outline, a sub-outline. First, he's going to show the motivation. Oh, I'm going to put it this way. The ugly motivation for this wisdom, it's in verse 14. And then he shows the dreadful description of this kind of wisdom in verse 15. And then last, he looks behind people that have used this kind of wisdom, and he says, here are the tragic consequences for following this kind of wisdom. And that's where I think the lesson really gets driven home. Okay, so we got the ugly motivation in verse 14, we got the dreadful description in verse 15, and the tragic consequences in verse 16. Y'all with me on that? Here's the ugly motivation, verse 14. What are these three inner motivations that he says? Bitter jealousy, selfish ambition in the heart, and arrogance. Do you see them? Like a three-headed, ugly monster. This is ugly truth. But this is the motivation that drives this kind of wisdom. This is uh, opening up the heart. This is seeing things like you're wondering, what's going on inside of that person? Here it is. Here it is. It's ugly. It's bitter jealousy. It's selfish ambition. And it is arrogance. That's what's on the inside. Man, not sparing any punches here. Now, the first one, we're going to go through these. The first one, jealousy, is the term zealos. Sounds like zeal, doesn't it? That's because zeal and jealousy are really very similar concepts. In fact, it often is translated zeal. Someone who is jealous has zeal for something. Might be zeal for keeping and possessing a relationship, for example. And we say he's, he's really jealous. Zeal and jealousy are not always bad the way we are. Usually they're bad, but they're not always bad. We know that because God is said to be a what? A jealous God, right? It's even in the Ten Commandments. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And he was not apologizing. He's holy and pure, and he was saying, this is good. I don't want you following after other gods. You were made for me. Keep your eyes on me and worship me. It's what he was saying. He doesn't want us to give our allegiance anywhere else. That's good jealousy. Why? Because it's pure in its motives. It's pure about the correct kind of relationship you are to have. It's zealous for what is right and good. There's a guy named Phineas in the Old Testament, and he was praised for this kind of jealousy, this kind of zeal for the name of God in Numbers chapter 25. He was zealous for God's honor, and uh, he, he did a violent act that actually calmed God's anger and caused the plague in the camp of Israel to reside. God liked his zeal for his name. Paul expresses this kind of godly jealousy in 2 Corinthians 11:2. He says, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. Don't go off and play around before I finish presenting you. You see, that's a godly kind of jealousy. 
Jesus had the same kind of jealousy slash zeal when he entered into the temple and he saw them selling things and he started throwing the tables up and casting everyone out. He said, quit making my father's house a den of robbers, right? That's good. Zeal for your house will consume me, it said in John 2, 17. Would that all of us had more of that kind of zeal for God's name. By the way, young people, it's not always good to just go along with the flow. Our generation, you know, the new generation is like, everybody just gets along. Sometimes you don't want to get along. Sometimes you want to say, that's wrong. And you want to stand up for the glory of Christ and God. But zealous can also be used in a negative way, in a destructive way. Galatians 5.20 lists jealousy with the deeds of the sinful flesh. And here in James, it's coupled with this adjective, bitter Picross, we've seen that adjective before. It was back in verse 11. Look back up at it. A springs that produce bitter water. We'd rather have the sweet water than the bitter water, right? No one wants to drink bitter water. You put it in your mouth, you spit it back out. It's no good. It's not drinkable. It's just a terrible, terrible taste. And so bitter jealousy can get into the heart, into the soul, into the thinking of even believers like us. In God's church, and it it can become sour and bad, and that bitter jealousy that is in the heart can fester there, and it can start to become the motive behind things that are said or things that are done, even in God's church. Dr. Hebert writes this, religious zeal or enthusiasm for God and truth is a commendable attitude, but the subtleties of sinful human nature can readily pervert it into bitter antagonism against those who do not express their adherence to God and his truth in the same way we do. In other words, we make too big of a deal out of smaller things. When our ideas and our positions are threatened or we're pushed aside and neglected, then the heart sometimes responds to that, not with faith, not with humility, but with getting sour. Hey, what about me? What about this cause? Jealousy is really akin to envy, don't you think? It's all about seeing what other people have and saying, hey, I want that for me. Why can't I have more of that? Why didn't I get more of that? Whatever the that is. And for different people, it's a different that. True? Sometimes it's a sports car. Sometimes it's just a friend. And we don't have what other people have, and we want it. We're not so happy about their happiness because we're not happy. And it creates a cruel rivalry in the heart as it gets worse and worse. In church, people get jealous of other people's successes, and they don't support them. We should be thrilled when someone uses their gifts to the glory of God. They get praised. They use it with skill. They bear fruit. And something good happens for the cause of Christ. We ought to all be excited about that. But people like this cannot. You can always detect bitterness in the heart because the comments that come out of the mouth are constantly prickly. You talk to someone, hey, how are you doing? And the first comment's like, why do you ask? It's just prickly. Everything's prickly. You want to touch it, it's ow. It's like a cactus uncomplimentary towards other people. What did you hear about so-and-so's doing? Yeah, that wasn't so great. Rejoicing with others becomes drudgery. You have to almost pull it out of them. Why do you have to do that? Bitter jealousy. Bitter jealousy. Not rejoicing with those who rejoice. Not being happy for others. Paul's in prison. People are out preaching with bad motives. And he said, I'm still rejoicing. Christ is being preached. Sometimes bitter people feel abandoned by God. Their prayers aren't heard. They start sinking into depression. What they need is not more bitterness and sulking. They need with genuine earnestness to seek after God, return to the Lord, confess their unbelief, ask for a greater perception and understanding of God's will for them, confess Christ's love for them again, believe in the love of Christ for your own soul, not quench the spirit of God, which is part of the problem. 
Receive correction. Work on your own heart. Be happy for others. Find joy in humbly giving things away. Let it not be about you, but about others. That's the pathway back. But they're all about blaming others, blaming God, blaming life, blaming anything for what they don't have. If jealousy is allowed to fester, bitter jealousy will really hurt unity in a family or in a church. Bitter rivalry between siblings, rivalry between two women in the church that can't get along, rivalry between two leaders that can't let smaller things be smaller things. That's one of the ugly heads. Look at the second ugly head of this three-headed monster. Selfish ambition. Bitter jealousy is usually in the heart in the first place because there's selfish ambition there. Why do I have this bitter jealousy? Answer, I had selfish ambition. If I hadn't had the selfish ambition, I probably wouldn't have developed the jealousy in the first place. They go hand in hand. This is actually a unique term. It's uh, eretheia. It's used only here in the New Testament. So you go around looking, where else was it used in Greek society? Actually, one place they found it was way back in the time of Aristotle. He used it to refer to, get this, political partisan zeal by greedy politicians carving up their areas, trying to get everyone to rally around them while putting everyone else down. So it seems to have been a highly political term, picturing candidates vying for position. It's inherently selfish. Trying to win something for oneself or one's cause or one's group. Dr. MacArthur writes, those whose lives are based on and motivated by human ungodly wisdom are inevitably self-centered. Living in a world in which their own personal ideas, desires, and standards are the measure of everything. Whatever and whoever serves those ends is considered good and friendly. Whatever and whoever threatens those ends is considered bad and an enemy. Those who are engulfed in self-serving worldly wisdom resent anyone or anything that comes between them and their own objectives. Nice hand and a handshake and a smile unless they're against you. The world system's built like that, right? I mean, if that's the way it is, I'm not teaching you anything with that. You see that all the time. But when it gets inside of the church, this society here that's to be completely different, this community here that's supposed to be a light to them starts acting like them, and we can't be a light anymore, right? We can't let it in here. We can't let it in our minds. We can't let it in our relationships. We can't let it in our leadership. We can't let it anywhere in the church of God without devastating consequences. When people begin to show loyalty to one leader or one section of the church to rally loyalty around themselves or for their own cause, that's a problem. Such selfish ambition may be hard to detect at first in church particularly. Why? Because it's couched in Christian language. It sounds so biblical. It's got precise theology, or so we think. It can fester in little gossip groups, and then from which they use to launch their criticisms of others in the church, and that chipping away at unity has already begun. Division and controversy surround someone who has selfish ambition. I think most of you remember we had this very evil surface in our church about a year ago with uh, partisans, I think is a way to describe them, speaking enough scripture to deceive, but who displayed little true humility and no maturity. They were stubbornly unteachable, rallying around their own leader, driving a wedge between people in the church, and they did their damage. James has people like that pegged in this indictment of worldly wisdom, and he's warning the congregations about it. Now we look at the third head of this ugly monster, and it's arrogance. 
arrogance, which lies against the truth. Arrogant is really the word boast or to boast over something. Ever seen someone, uh, you know, on Sunday morning, they, they, they sack the quarterback and kind of stand over them and gloat? That's kind of this word here, okay? It's arrogance. Why do you have uh, bitter jealousy? Answer, because you had selfish ambition. Why do you have selfish ambition? Answer, arrogance, arrogance. Some folks in society actually think that arrogance is a very useful attribute. Pastor Tom reviewed today how James unpacked worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. To be smart in the world's eyes isn't what true wisdom looks like. Your good deeds and how you live your life is the direct correlation to the wisdom that James writes about in the Bible. Pastor Tom also outlined three ways in which you can recognize wisdom as being worldly. Ugly motivation, tragic consequences, the dreadful description. Sounds good, looks good, is good, right? Wrong. With sad yet hope-filled hearts, we want to let you know that Pastor Tom Leek, the voice you've been listening to today, has gone home to be with Jesus. Pastor Tom served the Lord faithfully here on earth for 24 years, pastoring thousands and helping to create a network of like-minded churches in the Mid-Atlantic region. He shared the gospel unashamedly, shining light into this dark world. Pastor Tom will be missed, but we rejoice that he is healed and with his Savior. If you would like to learn more about Pastor Tom and his legacy, visit HopeBible.org. Now, here's a preview of the next edition of Discover Hope. Tune in next week when Pastor Tom dives into the heart of the matter about earthly wisdom. Listen, you may think that person or characteristic demonstrates wisdom, but it is so much against God you'd be amazed. Yes, there's insight that affects our thoughts and actions, and not positively either. Find out more when you listen next time on Discover Hope. Thanks for tuning in today for Discover Hope. If you'd like to hear more teachings from Pastor Tom, visit HopeBibleChurch.org. There's much more to learn from the book of James, so we hope you'll join us again right here on Discover Hope.